This is an ABC podcast. Bring out your dead! Bring out your dead! Monty Python making a joke of the plague in their film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But the plague was no laughing matter. In the 14th century, it killed about half the population of Europe and Asia, making it one of the most devastating pandemics in human history. Known then as the Black Death, it was one of three pandemics caused by the plague, a disease that persists to this day, as we'll hear in Rear Vision. I'm Kerry Phillips, and as we grapple with the new coronavirus sweeping the globe, let's consider the history of this deadly disease. The plague came in three varieties, but the most common symptom was the appearance of buboes, a swelling of the lymph nodes which produced pus and bled when opened. This was followed by acute fever and vomiting of blood. Anne Carmichael, who specialises in the history of medicine at Indiana University, says that if you caught the plague, death often came quickly. I guess as Petrarch says, the terrifying thing was that you could be well at breakfast and sup with your ancestors by nightfall. It just seemed to be terribly fast. And there's this aura where the speed with which people fell ill became extraordinarily ill, high fever and various other symptoms that that was carried over to the speed of the epidemic itself. That's how they felt. They didn't know when it was coming. It was all around. And the worst part of the epidemic, the terribly frightening part, I think they just couldn't keep up with the burials. There really is a peak, a spike. When people are talking about the, the Black Death itself, they're worried that they won't be, you think about Boccaccio, they, they're worried that they won't be buried in the parish church cemetery with their own ancestors. They will be buried in the wrong place. Some are worried that their bodies will touch people of the wrong class. The body's not quite dead after death, I think, for many, many people. The sheer mass of mortality, particularly at the, at the peak of the epidemic, brought in all sorts of people, sometimes from outside, who were not trusted, who were not known, handling the removal of a body from a house. At this moment of crisis, people became afraid of their family members. So there's the kind of classic tropes of plague, that brother abandoned brother, father abandoned child, that kind of thing. And I think it's those broken social links. Gosh, the incessant tolling of bells, of the church bells, people of various social stations were allowed a different length of time for mourning their passing. It must have been maddening. Dr. Sheila Barker from the Medici Archive Project says that the inability to cope with the sheer number of bodies was reflected in art. We can notice that they were surprisingly acute observers of what for them were signs of a phenomenon outside of the ordinary. So for me, when I look at the art, I'm curious how they define plague. We have all different ways of defining a disease that involve testing for one kind of pathogen or another or some particular symptom. For them, Plague, first of all, was what we call today super mortality. And you see that in the art. You see images of cities 
with corpses, with cadavers spread over the ground because there wasn't time to get the body to the funeral. There wasn't a person available to carry the body to the funeral. You see images of houses where there are 15 people, cadavers, dead people, piled up in the doorway because death has struck them all so quickly that no one could escape. Another interesting thing about the world of the 1348 plague is that there was a lot of contention in the medical world and among the elites as to whether plague was essentially a contagious disease passed from one sick person or sick animal or contaminated thing to another, or whether it was would have called a corruption of the elements, something in the air. This was the great quandary, and it, it's a dividing line between responses to plague. The most common explanation at the time was that it was a cloud of infection which was blown backwards and forwards across Europe. Professor John Hatcher from Cambridge University. And this was adopted primarily because they couldn't stop it spreading from place to place. And therefore this led to quite reasonable avoidance tactics on the part of the, the population, which is avoiding crowds, keeping away from other people. What were the tactics taken by people to try to avoid getting this illness? The steps they took to avoid it was, and in fact the medical authorities were, a number of them were, were very honest and said, the best advice I can give you is just to run away if the plague comes into your region. And of course it spread much more slowly, although it by medieval standards, it spread extraordinarily rapidly. By our own standards, it spread relatively slowly. And therefore, you could hear of it being in London if you were 10, 20 miles away and just flee. But most people couldn't flee because obviously they had no means of supporting themselves. But they did take steps to avoid each other. It was in the 16th century. Venice was the first authority to practice quarantine and they identified potential plague carriers and victims and shipped them across to the islands in the lagoon near Venice. And I think we tend to get misled with medieval medicine. The, the number of theories written by medical experts in, in the equivalent of the textbooks of the time were farther from the truth than the observance of farmers who knew that if one of their animals was sick, if one of their sheep was sick, they'd isolate it rather than leaving it with the rest of the flock because from experience they knew that the disease could be spread that way. Given the huge proportion of the population that perished with the pandemic, did it have a massive effect on the economy of the time? Well, yes and no. It affected the relationship between people and the ordinary people and the, the great landlords because the ordinary people became far fewer, land became cheaper and uh, more available simply through the incredible death rate. So wages 
tended to rise the bargaining power of, of ordinary people, the peasant classes in particular, increased and you get eventually the decline of serfdom. But the day-to-day living carried on very much as normal. If we look at the current fears of uh, coronavirus and the effect that will have on the economy could be a much greater shock because people in the, the Middle Ages live very close to the land. They could continue to produce food for themselves despite all the disruption in supply chains and markets. Whereas the globalization of the modern economy means we're interlinked in ways that make us much more vulnerable to something like this. It sounds, from what you've just said, as though if you managed to survive, you would actually possibly find yourself better off financially than you'd yes. been before. <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, <laughs> the how ironic it is that the, the huge death rate means that the survivors have a much higher standard of living than they had before and uh, get freedoms that they hadn't enjoyed before because they've become a scarce commodity. Whereas prior to the Black Death, historians are convinced that the, the population had grown too high and therefore food prices were high, wages were low. And that's all reversed. If 40% of the population die, prices fall, wages rise. The Middle Ages are so distant from us in time and the lives of the people and their beliefs are difficult to compare with our own. But medieval people were just that, people, and the way they reacted to the terror and horror of the Black Death was understandable. Did they, like some among us today, panic? Certainly they did. Because it spreads from the Mediterranean world northward, by the time you get to some place like what's now Belgium, there are people who could have heard about it before they saw it, before they see anybody dying around them, so that it was possible for news to travel faster. And there, there are many accounts of people who learn about it, that knowing ahead that something may be coming can produce panic, usually a panic that's orchestrated in particularly violent ways, and that you, you see some of the murders of Jewish communities or of strangers and outsiders, those kinds of targeted violence, thinking the end of the world was at hand. Especially during the Black Death in the 14th century, there was a very heavy apocalyptic tone to it. Nuket Valik is a historian at Rutgers University like it's the end of the world that's it it's end of times and so that tone is very very prevalent but also at the same time i mean it makes sense like this is the first time the world had seen anything of that scale it was unprecedented you know i feel like emotionally i can understand and i can relate to that response i mean we can see it in poetry we can see it in hagiographies not so much in state documents but it, like the emotional tone comes forward in more like literary sources. But what I also found interesting is that that apocalyptic tone kind of disappears over time. When you come to the 16th century or so, 
no one is really talking about the plague in the same apocalyptic context anymore. They're thinking of plague more like, you know, as something that is defined within the realm of the responsibilities of the state. So they're looking at the ruling class, they're looking at the elite for providing support. I mean, this I can trace in the documents, for instance, if, let's say, in a, in a province, there is a case of plague, and there's, you know, population loss, well, then they write to the state center to demand for a tax relief, for example. They say, you know, we lost 8,000 people this year, we cannot pay the taxes, please postpone our taxes. So what I'm trying to emphasize is that even that perception of the disease as a threat, even though it was something that was understood that was sent as something that was sent by God in the 14th century, in the 16th century, it's kind of understood to be as something that is related to, or at least under the control of the state. So, you know, it changes over time. The plague didn't die out completely after that peak in the middle of the 14th century. It recurred as savage outbreaks. The Great Plague of London in 1665 killed almost a quarter of the city's population. And during the Great Plague of Marseille in 1720, over half the city's population died. One would have expected over time for the immunity of the population to plague to have grown. In fact, the people who survive the Black Death may have a genetic mutation which meant that they survived. In other words, why everybody didn't die if, if two-thirds of the population are infected with the disease, as must have happened, because some survive having caught the disease. So you get immunity in the population, which would normally be the case, and this develops over time. One would expect the number of epidemics to decline, well they do, but the severity of outbreaks in the decades before the plague disappeared on a, 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 a sort of international scale are incredibly high. The Great Plague of London is the last serious plague in London, <laughs> but it killed far more than any plague in London had killed for decades and decades. And it's the same as the last plague in Mediterranean Europe, where it persisted for longer, and that's in Marseille, was a massive epidemic of plague, and then it's gone. And I don't think anybody currently is coming near to explaining why this happened. It didn't just fade away. It actually ended with uh, some really spectacular occurrences. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National, RN. As people around the world grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're hearing about the plague, a disease that has swept the world as a pandemic three times with devastating effect. The Black Death is known as the second plague epidemic. The first pandemic, the Justinian Plague, struck in the 6th century and is estimated to have killed between 30 and 50 million people, about half the world's population at the time. There was a third pandemic, which began sometime in the second half of the 19th century. During this outbreak, scientists finally identified the pathogen, a bacterium carried by fleas that live on rodents. 
called Yersinia pestis, it's named after Alexandra Yersin, the physician and bacteriologist from the Pasteur Institute who discovered it. Dr Christos Linteris is a medical anthropologist at the University of St Andrews. Well, we think it began in the southwest Chinese province of Yunnan. Now, depending on which records you take seriously or not, etc., it could be even the end of the 18th century or the mid of the 19th century. By the 1870s, we have very clear accounts or records of a plague raging in the Yunnan province by British colonial officers, by French missionaries, etc., But it really begins as a global phenomenon in Hong Kong in 1894, when plague arrives in the Crown Colony and it causes a major epidemic. And from there, it spreads across the globe very, very fast, to Australia included. The interesting thing is that this outbreak, the Hong Kong one, was the time when the actual pathogen was identified. So that was really helpful because up until 1894, no one had identified the plague pathogen. So in the summer of that year, in the midst of the epidemic, you have several teams, at least two, working on the pathogen. Most famously, Kitasato, a Japanese doctor, and Yersin, or Yersin, as he's known in English, who was a Pasteurian doctor of the Institute Pasteur. And both claim to have discovered the bacterium, but it is generally agreed that only Yersin found the actual bacterium. That's why we call the plague bacterium Yersinia pestis from his surname. Well, really, I think it's Alexander Yersin in Hong Kong. He came up from French Indochina and he noticed dead rats glistening in the sun of the Chinese district in the hill below the place where the colonial government was posted. And he also used rats as an experimental animal. He you know, these dramatic reports of what he did within really three days. He arrived in Hong Kong with a couple of assistants. He was denied any access to plague patients in any of the hospitals because the government wanted to privilege other researchers. He spoke no English. And so he bribed sailors to help him, and then he climbed down into grave sites and scooped material out of buboes and then cultured it, stained it, injected it into experimental animals and said, no, I know what the bacillus is, you know, about three days later and stuff. He wrote it all in letters to his mother. (laughs) It's just so funny. He was a very odd guy. And within a few years, researchers discovered how the bacterium was spread. The disease spread via rats and their fleas, and that was for the first time established in India, again by a French doctor, a Pasteurian doctor, Paul-Louis Simon, in 1898. Now, unfortunately, it took a while for people to accept that theory. Generally, the Pasteurian theories and Pasteurian medicine, which was the best at the time, encountered fierce resistance by the British, for one, and it took about another, at least five to ten years for people to accept the rat and its flea as the most important transmission pathway, because they were suspecting other transmission pathways, they were suspecting that it spreads through food, they were suspecting that it is harboured by the soil, so they were under the impression that uh, walking barefoot, for example, transmitted plague and 
they also believed that it could be a human-to-human contagion, which is feasible through human fleas, of course, but they're not very good vectors of plague. What approaches did authorities take to try to limit the spread of the disease? Well, depending on their theory, at any one time, they adopted different methods. They all adopted some form of disinfection or fumigation, both of boats and of uh, buildings, of of houses. They imposed uh, very strict quarantines and cordon sanitaires and isolation of patients. And they also employed more intrusive methods. So for those who believed that plague is harbored by the soil, they would de-roof houses in India, for example, so that the sun can desiccate plague in the soil where they believed that plague resided. Or in some very extreme cases, they would burn down neighborhoods. So we have the incident of Honolulu, the Chinatown, the authorities there think that it's only by burning down uh, infected houses in Chinatown that they will get rid of plague in Honolulu. So they mount a spectacular operation, including photographers, to capture this very controlled fire, which, however, gets completely out of control as the wind changes and it burns a big part of the city down. Then there was bubonic plague at the turn of the century. Again, there were roundups and thousands were taken to North Head Quarantine Station, where many of them died. The carrier was the rat. Professional rat catchers used cage traps, rabbit traps and small dogs to collect over 27,000 rats, which were then consigned to the rat incinerator. Inevitably, the plague came to Australia. Professor Peter Curson from the medical school at Macquarie University. What happened was that a couple of ships probably arrived with infected rats on the ship and the rats undoubtedly got off at some stage, as did the passengers and the freight. And in 1900, a very large proportion of Sydney's working class was living very close to the wharf area and the rocks and the area. And it didn't take long for those infected rats to actually interact with domestic rats, of which there were many, many tens of thousands in those days. And the plague spread fairly quickly. What did authorities do to contain it? Well, they eventually instituted a fairly radical system of quarantining and removal of people. They began to quarantine areas that were affected. They began ultimately a policy of demolishing people's homes where plague was suspected. They removed many thousands of people to quarantine in the Northern Head Quarantine Station not only people who had actually shown infection, but people who had the misfortune to have been in contact with them. And in addition to that, there was widespread fear and hysteria. And of course, as with all epidemics, there's a search for scapegoats, somebody to blame, and people blame the Chinese. And the government reacted and removed hundreds of families of Chinese to the quarantine station where they were put in tents near the wharf away from the actual people who had plague. In addition to that, many of the Chinese homes and the rocks were demolished, destroyed, cleansed, and there was tremendous reaction against the Chinese community. There was unbelievable panic. Although there was a major epidemic of smallpox in Sydney in 1881, which saw a tremendous panic, nothing matched what happened in Sydney in 1900. The panic was unbelievable. People 
blockade themselves away from neighbours, they searched for people to blame, they avoided everybody they could, hundreds fled to the Blue Mountains, others tried to get out of Sydney in any way they could, panic was absolutely widespread. Although the plague didn't disappear, it was brought under control after the Second World War by the massive use of insecticides like DDT to kill the fleas. Biologically speaking, the pandemic has not ended in the sense that the outbreaks we have every year in Madagascar, for example, are part of the third pandemic. But it was, if you want, politically terminated by the WHO in 1959 when it I think reasonably it said that it was no longer a pandemic, in fact there were not multiple countries manifesting the epidemic. But biologically speaking, the you know, we live in the afterlife or the post-pandemic period of that pandemic, which still affects areas around the world. Yes, that's right. It's surprising to find that it's even in developed countries like the United States. Well, in the States it arrived in 1900, again by boats carrying rats, and then the rats spread it to native populations of wild rodents like prairie dogs. So slowly plague moved in through these natural reservoirs all the way to the Rocky Mountains. So the Rocky Mountain line, you can say, is uh, one of the main reservoirs, say, in Colorado and south of the Rocky Mountains in Arizona and New Mexico. These are endemic areas, some parts of these states have endemic reservoirs of plague. But generally speaking, the disease was controlled through the application of very powerful insecticides, DDT, for example. So it was resolved by focusing on killing the fleas after the Second World War and the massive adoption of these insecticides. Recent DNA testing of bones from medieval graves in the UK has shown that the plague bacterium hasn't changed over the centuries. John Hatcher says that despite that, the plague is very hard to catch these days. Oh yes, the people who catch it in California tend to be people who go around skinning chipmunks. Or... It just isn't that easy to catch. And when you catch it, it doesn't spread quickly at all and that isn't just antibiotics it's actually it does appear as though populations have a much greater resistance to catching plague than they did centuries ago but quite why we still don't know. There's been a lot of interest during the current coronavirus outbreak in previous pandemics especially the Spanish flu that followed the first world war. The death toll from Spanish flu is contested, but estimates range between 1% and 6% of the population. The Black Death killed a much higher percentage, 30 to 60%. For whatever reasons, during the epidemic itself, during the aftermath, the Black Death ends up making a substantial impact. We're just not sure exactly what kind of cultural impact you have the sense of the world changing directions, I guess. And right now, people are in the fear and panic stage because they're trying to think about 
certainly I am, their own lives and where where they can't go and whether they have enough stored up, whether they can afford, you know, to fight over toilet paper at the shopping center, you know, about whether they might lose someone. I mean, they're not as viscerally afraid of how many of my family will survive as was characteristic of, of people going through plagues in the past. At least mercifully, it doesn't seem to be that severe. Influenza, to me, is the right kind of comparison because it's airborne. But influenza, 1918, 1919, killed young adults. And this one is just people my age. The young are not quite as panicked. Anne Carmichael, Professor Emerita in the Department of the History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine at Indiana University. The other guests were John Hatcher, Emeritus Professor of Economic and Social History at Cambridge University, Professor Peter Curson from Macquarie University, Dr Christos Linteris from the University of St Andrews, Nuket Valik, an Assistant Professor of History at Rutgers University, and Dr Sheila Barker from the Medici Archive Project. Russell Stapleton is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.